Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, and I want to bring you to chapter 4. So Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read the last part of the chapter. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 4, and we'll read from verse number 11 down to the close of the chapter. Hebrews 4, 11, let us hear the Word of God. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the fading of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts. Now, I want to focus your minds this evening on those final three verses of this chapter. They are exceedingly well-known verses. They've been preached on, uh, well, I don't know how many times in church history. They are favorite verses of many of the Lord's people. They are grand verses uh, every time we read them and feel their freshness. And they are the words that the Lord laid upon my heart for this meeting tonight. In them, Paul presents several fundamental truths about Christ, the high priest of his people. In doing so, his purpose is to encourage God's people in their spiritual experiences. In these verses, you'll find that Paul urges the church to persevere in two areas. First of all, believers are to persevere in their adherence to our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the closing words of verse number 14, let us hold fast our profession. Now the word profession could also be read confession. Uh, the word confession or profession, the original word, means to speak or to say the same thing. In other words, professing or confessing to be a Christian means that we agree with what God has revealed in terms of truth, the gospel, the Lord's will for our lives, all of those great truths that are set forth, the fundamentals of the faith, everything in fact that God says in the Bible. One who is a, a true Christian, this is his or her confession or profession that that individual is in agreement with what the Lord has said. Now, sometimes it may chide us, the Word of God, it may bring uh, to our hearts a sense of our own unworthiness, and of course it will, because we're nothing but sinners, and yet at the same time we agree with that. 
We know this is true, and therefore what God says, we are in agreement with it. So that's one thing that he does here. He urges believers to persevere in their adherence to Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast our profession. The second main thing that he does, and these are not my points, by the way, these are just trying to set up the scene for you. The second thing that he does here in urging us to uh, do what we should do is that believers are to persevere in prayer. And that's, of course, in the opening part of verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace. And you notice how both those exhortations are really written in the same style. Let us hold fast our profession. Let us come boldly onto the throne of grace. The language there is in the nature of an exhortation. Paul exhorts us. Here's something that we're to do. We're to hold fast to our confession, our profession of what the truth is. And we are to persevere in prayer. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. The word boldly means to speak freely. And so Paul uh, does impress upon believers that they have the privilege of coming in prayer to seek the Lord without any reservation, without any hesitation, but to come and talk freely to the Lord. And that's a wonderful thought that you have in that kind of language. Let us come boldly with freedom, speak freely to the Lord about our burdens, our concerns, our challenges, our heartaches, our sorrows, or coming, of course, as well to praise Him, to thank Him. And we always need to do that. So that's how uh, Paul urges the church these two main exhortations here in, in, in these verses. Furthermore, the encouragement that Paul gives to Christians to persevere, to persevere in those two areas is encased in the opening words of verse 14. He says this, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Then he says, let us hold fast, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. So his reasoning is very, very clear. Because we have a high priest, we are therefore to hold fast. And we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. Now it's the second of these matters that I want to look at tonight with you, where he says that because of a high priest, we're, we're to pray. And we're going to look at that. And what we're going to find is that there are five things about Christ that should encourage us always to pray. You might feel, oh dear, five points. We'll never get home tonight. Well, don't worry about it. You will get home. And let's think about these five things about our Lord as our high priest. I want to start with this one. Christ's impeccability as our high priest. The words at the end of verse 15, where it says that he was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin which means literally apart from sin. And the point made is that while the Lord Jesus Christ was assailed with the utmost ferocity in terms of temptation and pressure from the powers of darkness and, of course, from ungodly men, it, none of it evoked any response in Christ with regard to sin or with regard to failure. In other words, the sinful temptations that were presented to Jesus Christ were designed to show that he is impeccable in his nature. 
that he is one who possesses absolute purity. And that is a fundamental truth and doctrine concerning the person of our Lord. And that is why he was tempted. And we must get that straight and, 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 and understand it correctly as we think about it. The Lord was tempted not to prove that he could be tempted and, and stand the test, but he was tempted in order to show that he couldn't sin. Why is that so important? Why is that so important about prayer? And the answer is this. We need a high priest with impeccable purity, with that sinlessness that he alone possesses, in order for us to realize, well, as we come to the Lord, as we come to the throne of grace, we are sinners. We fail so much. We're so easily swept away by temptation and by trials, but we're coming in the name of someone who is impeccably holy. And therefore, we're coming on that basis, uh, the, the basis of the impeccable humanity of someone who could not be defeated. And as our high priest, he prays for us without inter intermission. He prays at God's right hand continually. He's always there to succor us, and through him we're enabled to triumph over sin, over backsliding, over every form of devilish opposition, and therefore we can come to the throne of grace to pray because we have an impeccable high priest who has all this to us that I have summed up in what I've already said. So that's one thing about Christ, our high priest. His, he is impeccable as our high priest. Then, notice Christ's authority as our high priest. It says here in verse, six, verse 14, we have a great high priest. Now that is only used of Christ, that phrase, a great high priest, in all Scripture. And taken especially, of course, the New Testament. It's only ever used of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, it's only ever used once of Jesus Christ. Oh yes, many, many times he's referred to as high priest. In fact, in the book of Hebrews alone, the phrase high priest is found ten times. But this is the only time that is accompanied by the adjective great. And so it says we have a great high priest. And so how that could be read is this. Taking the prefix great, we can read it this way. We have a high archpriest, because the words there, high priest, if you take them on their own, they actually mean an archpriest. I know that religions like to talk about their archbishops and so forth, but we care for none of that, because we have an arch, a priest, or an arch, a high archpriest. That's what the words literally mean. A great high priest, a high archpriest. Someone who is without equal, but someone also who supersedes every other person who would pretend to be a high priest or a priest between man and God. And there are plenty of them. But the Lord Jesus Christ is our high or our great archpriest in the absolute sense. He's unparalleled in his dignity. He's unparalleled in his majesty. He's unparalleled in his sufficiency. The Lord, the Lord possesses an exclusive authority to act as our arch-high priest before God and on our behalf as sinners 
as men and women who are weak and frail and failures. But you see, that authority rests on a certain foundation. And you see it there in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And just take that title for a moment and look at it. Jesus, the Son of God. And you have two things in that title. You have what is called the eternal sonship of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. And so his essential deity is in that title, along with the fact that he is eternally the Son of God. And we find that again and again in the book of Hebrews. Paul keeps bringing it out in many, many of the statements on this wonderful epistle. But there's also here his humanity in that name Jesus that is given to the Lord. Because he was named that way when he was born. It belongs to the realm of his manhood, his true humanity. And therefore, we find in this kind of language, names given to Christ that underline why he has all this authority, why he is, a, he is our arch high priest. It's because he is both God and man. And you will know that's a favorite theme of mine. And it should always be the favorite theme of every Christian, that Jesus Christ is God and man. And we need to understand that doctrine and really imbibe it into our souls and, and stand by it and live by it. You see, the Lord has this authority as our great archpriest because of who he actually is. And this is who he is. He is the eternal Son, signifying not only that, but his true deity. And he is Jesus, the one therefore born of the woman. He is a real humanity. And that means that it is no mere man that we have as our high priest but rather the God-man who has absolute power. And how that should encourage our souls as we come to pray, whether it's tonight or at any other time, that we have someone with absolute authority representing us, standing for us, bringing us nigh to God, he himself praying for us, someone who cannot be gainsaid or someone whose praying cannot be overthrown is the praying of our great arts priest. Turn to chapter 8 and look with me at the first two verses of this chapter. It brings out something very similar. Chapter 8 of Hebrews and verse 1. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. And Paul's simply saying there, I want to sum up some things. That's what he says of the things that we have spoken. In other words, right through the first seven chapters, he's now giving you a little summary of what he has written. And what is it? We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so he's coming to a peak here, and he's saying here, uh, now I want to give you a little brief summary of what I have already been saying, and that is that we have, as he puts it here, we have such an high priest. And the word such means a suitable high priest. That's the sense of that word. A suitable high priest. And where is he? He sat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
And so as Paul summarizes things here, he brings before us this very thought that he has enunciated earlier in the book, as we see in chapter 4. He speaks of Christ as our arch-high priest on a throne, equal with the majesty in the heavens, meaning that he's of the same substance as God, and he's co-equal with God, and he's co-eternal with God. Brethren and sisters, this is our Savior. This is our high priest. How can we not pray when we're coming on that kind of the ground, uh, that kind of ground of truth? We have, we have this great arch priest. This is the summary, Paul says, a high priest set on the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, on the throne of glory. You know, Psalm 110, uh, verse 1 and verse 4, uh, those two verses from Psalm 110 are often quoted in the New Testament, and especially again in Hebrews. And what do they say, those two verses? Jehovah said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then verse 4, where it says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that, that psalm, that wonderful psalm, that messianic psalm, points us to Christ as our high priest, along with the fact that he is on the throne. His work is done. His sacrifice is finished. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended to glory. And he's there in all his blessed authority. So we have his impeccability. And we have his authority. But we move on here to the third thing. And that is, it says going back to Hebrews chapter 4, we have a great high priest. Verse 14, Jesus the Son of... Sorry, we have... Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. And there you see Christ's victory as our high priest. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. And as has often been said before in looking at these verses, it reads this way, we have a great high priest that is passed through the heavens. Through the heavens. That's the literal rendering of those words. Yes, he's gone into the heavens, but he has passed through the heavens. And the sense of the language there is this. He has passed through the heavens in the face of all difficulties overcoming every one of them. What Paul is really saying is nothing could stop the Lord from passing through the heavens up into the third heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now this kind of language is also found, if you'll turn to Acts 12, it's also found in Acts 12 verse number 10. I want you to notice it, how the same verb is used there and translated in the way which I have explained passing through. Acts 12 and the verse number 10. And notice what we find here. Acts 12 verse number 10 is the story of Peter in prison and the angel of the Lord comes to set him free. And so you get to verse 10 that says, when they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And by the way, that language there, uh, where it says open to them of his own accord, literally that reads, it opened to them automatically. That's the sense of those words. The gate just simply opened up as if uh, 
as I just said, automatically. There was nobody to open the gate. The, 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 the guards are all paralyzed. Peter can't open the gate. The gate just swings open automatically. That's the sense of those words. And actually, the Greek word there is the word from which we get automatically. So I'm not telling you a lie here. It's actually the Greek word that gives us the word. It's automatos, giving you automatically. But read on. Then it says they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from them. And so literally those words can be read this way, having passed through a first guard and a second. Uh, the very start of the verse, when they were past the first and the second ward, you actually find the, the verb up there that I'm talking about. When, or reading it literally, having passed through a first guard and a second. There were different stations of guards. Never mind the chains and Peter's hands, never mind the great iron gate out at the outside onto the street. All of this other uh, effort was made to stop Paul from escaping. And that's how the verse reads. And having passed through, and there's the same verb. In other words, nothing could stop Paul or Peter from getting out of that prison. And the same word is used, therefore, going back to Hebrews chapter 4. Nothing could stop the Lord from ascending up to glory and taking his place at the Father's right hand. He could not be stopped. There is the victory of our high priest. Now let me turn you to Ephesians 4. Because in this chapter we have a, really a parallel to this whole matter of the Lord ascending up in an unstoppable way. Ephesians chapter 4 and the verse number 9. And it says there, Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended up, or he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. What those two verses are saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ first descended into this earth to do the work of redemption. And when he had finished that work, then he ascended up from this earth. Some people will interpret those verses as if it says, or means that the Lord went down into hell. But it says there, he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. It simply means the Lord came down to this world and humbled himself. That's what it means. And from this earth, he ascended up to heaven. He didn't go down into hell. He never did. He endured hell on the cross. And then when he rose from the dead, from this earth, he ascended back up to the Father. His work is done. Redemption is complete. His humiliation is over. He has suffered. He has died. He has made atonement. He's destroyed the works of the devil. The work is finished. The work is victorious. Remember what Colossians 2, 15 says, that he, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. Then he ascended. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, ascended up in victory. And so we have a high priest in the victory of what he did. That's why we can come to pray. The fourth one is Christ's sympathy as our high priest. Going back, please, to Hebrews 4 
And look with me at verse 15, where Paul says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Which simply means we have a high priest who can be touched and is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The word touched is the, is the important word. And this word touched in the original language sounds something like this, sumtathesia. Now, can you hear an English word there? It's the word sympathy. The word sympathy comes straight from this word that means touched. It's a lovely word. It's a soul-stirring word. See, one of the qualifications of the earthly high priest like Aaron was he had to be a compassionate man. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, verse 2, Paul there goes into a little detail about the high priest on earth, I mean, among the Israelites. Every high priest taken among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion, who can have compassion on the ignorant, that is, the unlearned, and on them that are out of the way, and so forth. And so notice the reference there to the fact that even Aaron had to have a compassionate heart and that being so, how much more do we need a high priest who never fails to be compassionate, who is actually touched with the feeling of our infirmities? And just note that language. And remember that the word, as I've explained to you, the word touched here gives us the English word uh, that means sympathy or is actually sympathy. And therefore, it was essential that our Lord Jesus Christ would have this compassion, this sympathy, and He does have it. He has it in a fullness. He has, he has it without any, uh, without any failure on His part. He's always touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Just think about that tonight. He's touched because he's the perfect man. Perfect man. You see, your sympathy or my sympathy for other people is limited. It often fails. We don't feel for people the way we should. But that will never, ever be true of Christ. Why should you and I pray, uh, come to the throne of grace, because we have Christ in His sympathy on our behalf. And therefore, we can come to that throne of grace tonight and take home to our hearts this wonderful thought as you come with your burdens, as you come with your cares, your concerns, as we pray with feeling, I trust, for souls that are lost and the work of God in general that needs our prayers, we can do so with great encouragement knowing that we're coming to someone who actually is touched with the feelings that fill our hearts, the feelings that accompany our infirmities, our limitations, our failures, our fears, our sins. The Lord is touched with all that. And I want you to get a hold of that. It's not like you or me where you go to a bereaved home and you do your utmost and, and you mean it with all sincerity and you hold out your hand or you give a person a hug 
and you say, I really feel for you. I want you to know that we're praying for you and you're doing it as best you can. My dear friend, here's the difference. You do not feel that person's pain. You don't. The only time we feel the pain of a bereaved person is when we are bereaved. But it's impossible for someone's pain of bereavement to be transmitted to us. That's impossible. But it's not impossible with regard to our uh, feelings of our infirmities, our sorrows, whatever they might be, being transferred or transmitted to Christ. And here's the reason why. We are joined to Christ. We are in union with Christ. And what you feel, he feels. That's what Paul is saying here. It's much more than the Lord saying, I sympathize with you or I feel for you. It's much, much more than that. It's the Lord actually feeling your sorrow, feeling your pain. In that sense, he is touched, but in a way that you and I cannot be touched with other sorrows. So why should we not come to this throne of grace to talk to this blessed Savior? Many a time you may get down, it's maybe not going to happen in public too much. But you may get down to pray, my friend, and all you can do is weep. All you can do is shed tears or groan in the depth of your heart. But do you know that the Lord is touched with that in this sense? He actually feels it. Do you remember whenever he saved Saul of Tarsus? He said to Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? Now, by the time Saul started to persecute the church, the Lord was already in heaven. So it wasn't that Saul went up to the Lord and smote him or something like that. When he persecuted the saints, when he was responsible for the murder of Christians, as he was, when he imprisoned them and had them beaten, the Lord felt it. The Lord says to Paul, Saul, you have been persecuting me. What you did to my people, I felt it. You know, my friend, that brings out all the more the wonder of God's mercy to, to uh, Saul of Tarsus. What did he deserve? Not the mercy he received, but the very opposite. And yet the Lord had mercy in him. Must close. The fifth thing is Christ's accessibility as high priest. It says there in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so accessibility comes out in that 16th verse. Because that 16th verse now urges us very strongly to approach the throne of grace. And the thought is, the inference is, well, the Lord's on that throne and therefore he's accessible. And there's a certain argument employed in that verse. Paul says, let us therefore come. 
And here's the argument. We come to the throne of grace and we come knowing that the Lord is accessible. For what reason? Because he has gone within the veil and he's waiting for us to come. And when we come, he lends an ear. Just to put it very simply, when we come and we know that the Lord's accessible and we can draw an eye and we can come before God, the Lord himself is in there. He's at that throne. He himself is the body of the embodiment of intercession. He's praying. He wants us to come and pray. And therefore, we can come with this great encouragement that the Lord is not afar off. The Lord is not distant. The Lord's accessible. That is therefore Draw near. Christ entered heaven by the merit of his own blood. We enter heaven on the same ground. I mean in prayer. We enter heaven upon the ground of the atonement, the precious blood. Tonight, therefore, brethren and sisters, come with your pleas and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Five, five facts that Paul sets before us here about our great high priest. I trust that the Lord will write them on our minds and he will use them to stir up our hearts. You know, there's so much to inhibit us in prayer. So much to make us reluctant to pray. I trust you will understand what I'm saying. That's not a criticism I include myself in this. We all know our weakness, our failure. We're so easily intimidated. Intimidated through self-consciousness. That's the big battle for young people in the place of prayer and older folk too. How could I pray in a public prayer meeting? I just couldn't do it. You tell yourself you feel intimidated or the old devil whispers in your ear. What are you praying for? Look what you did today or whatever. And you feel that you're not worthy to come. And neither you are. But the point is, Christ is there to give you a welcome. Come to the throne of grace. Come tonight. Lift up your voice. Cry to heaven as we get down to prayer. And may the Lord take his word that we've considered and use it to encourage us to lay hold upon his throne and do so for his glory. We'll just have a word of prayer at this stage before we sing a verse or two of a hymn. So let's bow in prayer and let's all just settle ourselves before the Lord and right on through to the close where our time of prayer starts a little later here after the announcements and let us set ourselves to pray tonight. And Father, we do thank thee for thy word and for all that it says to us. And we thank thee for the impeccability and the authority of our Savior and the victory that marks his own place at thy right hand. Lord, we rejoice in all these truths that Paul sets before us about Christ as he exhorts us to come to the throne of grace. And Lord, may we take them to heart and may we come to thee knowing that there is one who sympathizes with us, one who is accessible. O oh Lord, help us to come. And help us to lay hold on thy throne. And bless us, we pray. And be with us as we continue on with thee now. We ask this in Jesus' name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. And amen.